Amen. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to start in verse 15, I'll read through 20. It says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit. But if a bad tree, uh, but a bad tree bears bad fruit, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. By their fruit you'll recognize them. Four things I want you to see this morning uh, as we study this text about two types of trees as Jesus is warning about false prophets. I want to begin with this one, and maybe you missed it, but it's really, really important. The first thing I want you to see this morning is that there is a standard of truth. There is a standard of truth. In verse 15, when Jesus says, watch out for false prophets, when he says that, when he says, watch out for false prophets, he's implying that there is indeed a a standard or a measure of truth by which their teaching is deemed false, right? Mainly the Bible, guys. He says, watch out for false prophets because there are people that are coming amongst you and they're going to be bringing a different kind of gospel than the gospel that the pages of Scripture will teach, okay? And that's, that's, a, that's a big deal. That's why doctrine is so important because not every gospel that you hear is the true gospel. And I, I want to I tell you guys, today we live in a day and age like none other where people don't really even know what the gospel is anymore because there are so many false gospels. And I just want to talk about a couple of them with you this morning. I, I joked with the early service that we could have stayed right here on this first point all morning. Uh, so, so let's just talk about a couple of those false gospels. The first one that comes to mind for me, guys, is the false gospel of good works, right? That gospel that says that you can earn your way into the presence of God, right? And you've kind of heard the summation of the gospel that basically you, we all know that we're bad people, right? We're all sinners and that God is good and that God is holy. Therefore, if I want to go to heaven, I've got to be good enough for God. That's how this gospel goes. And of course, what that means, uh, the way we figured it out is, is that our good stuff has to outweigh our bad stuff by a certain amount, We're not really sure what that amount is, and that's where all the fear comes in, where people laying on their deathbed are are gripped with fear, not knowing if they've been good enough for for the gospel of good works. And and so we want to tell you that that's a false gospel, and I want to show you why it's a false gospel, because when you take that gospel of good works and you lay it up against the standard of truth, which is the Bible, some things become very apparent. Number one is, is, is the truth that apart from Jesus, you can't have good works. Right. So you got to start there. Somebody says, listen, my good works have to outweigh my bad works. I start here and say, listen, there's no such thing as good works. That's a fallacy apart from Jesus. Ephesians 2, 9 and 10 says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. But you can't take the Christ Jesus out of that phrase. You can't take Christ. It's prepared in Christ Jesus to do good works. We're made in Christ Jesus. So without Christ Jesus, there are no good works, right? I think Isaiah says it this way. Isaiah 64, 6, he says, All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. All of our, so, so hear me now. Apart from Jesus, there are no good works, none whatsoever. Now, now here's the deal. 
if, if you could produce good works apart from Jesus, which you can't, but let's say that you could, the Bible goes further and says those good works which you can't really produce, but you think you can, those good works couldn't save you anyway. Right? Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace that we've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So the Bible says, even if you could produce good works, which you can't, apart from Jesus, but if you could, those good works couldn't save you. So, so when you take the gospel of work and you put it up against the standard of truth, the standard of truth absolutely obliterates the gospel of good works. You see that the true gospel stands so far above that. But you've got to have a standard of truth. Now, I want to pause there for a second. This morning, we had, a, we had a good crew at 8.30. I was surprised. A lot of people at 8.30. And I said, you know, I want to pause there because I realize a lot of people that come to church here are raised in a charismatic background. Okay? And, and, and you, I, I say that to you. A lot of people think that I'm, I'm a charismatic preacher, evidently, out and about in the community. Somebody asked about First Baptist. Somebody over in Maynard said, oh, you go to that church with that young charismatic preacher? I don't know what that means. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm Baptocostal, I guess. Uh, and uh, any, anyway, if that means you're excited about Jesus, yes, I'm charismatic. I'm excited about Jesus, okay? And so, uh, I, I, anyway, but maybe you're raised in that background. And here's the deal. Uh, if I'm going to talk about Ephesians 2.8, uh, for it is by grace that you're saved uh, through faith, then, then we need to talk about that for a second. Because some of my friends coming from a charismatic background think that they're saved by faith. And friend, that passage doesn't say that you're saved by faith. It says you're saved by grace through faith. And that's a huge difference because if you believe that you're saved by faith and your faith falters, then you start to question your salvation. And unfortunately, that's kind of what's taught in some some charismatic background. So I want to just eliminate that this morning. You see, the best picture I can paint for you is that you're on a seventh floor of a burning building. And, 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 and there's no way out other than to jump. And so I'm, I'm crying out to you. I'm saying, Rusty, jump! Rusty, jump! Now, if Rusty has faith in me and he jumps out of that window, is he going to be saved? Well, not if I don't have a net, brother. He's going to go splat and we're going to go, Rusty, ah! You're supposed to wait for the net. Like, don't start yet. Right? So, so by faith, he jumped out, but there was, there was no net to save him. Friends, that's the same thing. Here's what we're saying. It's by grace that you're saved. You're saved by the net. Faith is the vehicle by which you fall into the net. What that means is if you're saved by grace, you can't lose that grace. You can't lose the grace of God. You can't lose your salvation. Faith is the vehicle by which you fell into it. So if your faith wavers, you're still saved because it wasn't the faith that saved you. The faith is what allowed you to fall into the grace of God. You follow me? Okay. So we got to clear that up. So here, here's what I'm saying to you guys. There are false gospels out there. One of them is that false gospel of work. But when you hold it up against the standard of truth, it, it's obliterated. Let's talk about another false gospel. I want to talk to you about the false gospel of Mormonism. Somebody said, Pastor, I didn't know we were going there. We're going there, okay? Here we go. Ready? Get ready. We're going to be educated. Let's start with this. Do you know that Mormons are not monotheistic? Monotheistic means you believe in one God. Mormons are not. They believe in three gods. Uh, to them, there's the Father, He's God, He's separate. There's the Son, He's God, He's separate. There's the Holy Spirit, He's God, He's separate. Now, again, let's hold it up against the standard of truth. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. Let's hold it up against the standard of truth. Uh, John ten thirty. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Friends, we worship one God... One God and three persons. 
It's the Trinity, Trinitas in Latin, that's where it came from. We walked through all this early church, Father. I'm not guessing, I'm, I'm not expecting you to understand. I'm just saying that, that we, we serve one God in three persons who lives communally in community together at all times, does everything together, doesn't do anything separate. It's not modalism where the Father did this and then the Son did that and then the Spirit did that. Always working in unity. Always. That's the God that we worship. So you, you take what they believe and you put it up against that. Now let's go on. I want to talk to you about the gospel of Mormonism a little bit. Gospel of Mormonism tells you that, um, that God was once a man. Okay? And the this man became God. This is where they get their view that you too, therefore, can become God. And when you do become God, men, I'm only talking to the men, ladies, it doesn't count for you. Men, if you're good enough... When you become God, you'll be God of your own planet. And if your wives are submissive enough, you can allow them to live there with you and reign over that planet. Now, men, don't go converting on me, okay? Don't think that sounds, that sounds good there, Pastor, submissive wife, right? Living in fear their whole life. Don't go converting on me. Now, now again, don't miss this. Don't miss this. This is at the heart of their gospel. At the heart of their gospel is the fact that God at one point was not God, but he was man and he became God. And therefore you can too. That's at the heart of their gospel. Now, what does the standard of truth say about that? The standard of truth, Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say in the beginning, a man became God and then he created the heavens and the earth. It begins with God. The gospel does not begin with you and it does not begin with me. It is not a man-centered gospel. It is a God-centered gospel. That's the standard of truth. And again, you've got to hold these false gospels up to the standard of truth. I could go on and on. Wednesday night, we talked a little bit about Jehovah's Witness. We talked a bit. We got into a lot of things. You should come on Wednesday night. We have fun. Uh, I can't spend all that time this morning talking about it. I just want you to nail down this one point, friends. There is a standard of truth. There's a standard of truth. It's the Bible. It's the Bible. And we'll talk a little bit uh, here in just a moment about why we need to hold to that standard. Number two. According to this text, the great danger is not that there are wolves in the world, but that there are wolves in the church. That's the great danger, friends. Jesus is saying wolves are coming and it's not that they are going to surround you. It's that they are going to live amongst you. That's that, that that's a little scarier thought, isn't it? Now, now I, Jack and Joyce Henderson were in the first service and I was talking. I was messing with Jack on Wednesday because they want to they want to move to Colorado. They've got family in Colorado and they want to move. Jack wants to be this mountain man out in Colorado. And I can see it. He's got his gun ready. He's got a mule. I mean, he's going to go out there and kill some things and live off the land. And I, I said, you know, th- there's one thing when you go out there, you know, you're carrying a gun for a reason because you expect to find wolves and things like that out in the great outdoors. But when we walk in buildings like this, we lower our guard and we don't expect to find the false teaching and the wolves that are often dressed in sheep's clothing in the church. But Jesus warned against them. Jesus warned clearly against them. He said, listen, they're coming. They're coming to you. They're going to be dressed like you. And hear me. Here's the problem. Outwardly, they're going to look like they fit in. 
Outwardly, uh, from a distance, their teaching might even seem very eerily similar to that of the true Bible. But upon closer examination, we will and should find them false. And there's a great word picture here that the the, uh, New Testament hearers would have gotten that we miss today. But I'm going to reintroduce it to you. This is what Jesus says at the end of this uh, here. He says in verse 16, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Now, that makes no sense to us. Completely lost on us. We don't live in the wilderness. We have no clue what Jesus is talking about. But check this out. There was a thorn bush. Uh, there still is a thorn bush, actually. It's called the buckthorn. Now, I want you to look at the fruit of the buckthorn. What does that look like to you? Looks like grapes, right? Jesus said you don't pick grapes from thorn bushes. Or thorn trees, right? You don't pick grapes. Now, this is what he's talking about. So now look at that. That, that, that fruit looks like a grape. It, it looks just like a grape. Guess what? It has lots of protein in it, but the second that you bit into it, you'd figure out something. It doesn't quite taste like a grape. You want to know what these are usually used for? Dyes and inks. <sighs> you grabbed a handful of those and tried to make you some wine, you would not be making a lot of money, okay? Not choice wine right there, the buckthorn. Not what you want to get into. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, on the exterior, on the outside, these people are going to come to you. And the teaching that they have for you, it's going to seem so similar. But in the end, it's a completely different berry, brother. On on the end, what's on the inside, it's completely different what's at the heart of it. Now, that leads to a very natural question. Pastor, if that is the case, how do I tell the difference? Right. How do I tell the difference? Well, let's talk about a couple of ways that you can tell the difference. And and there are many more, but a couple of ways you can tell the difference between the true gospel and a a false prophet. Okay. number one, we talked about this last week. We read the Bible in context. Right. We talked last week about two what two two roads, two paths. Right. One of them was wide where everybody could go down it and do whatever they wanted. There were no restrictions. Right. But the other one was very narrow. I want you to hear this clearly. The false prophet doesn't have a narrow way. The false prophet doesn't preach a narrow way because a narrow way is not popular. And the false prophet longs to be popular. That's their aim is to be well received by men, not necessarily by God. And so their aim is that popularity. There's no narrow way. I love what Martin Lloyd Jones says about the false prophet. It's Hear this. It's a it's a tough quote, but wrap your mind around this. He says it's a teaching, the falseness of which is to be be detected by what it does not say rather than by what it says. I'll read that again. He says it's a teaching, the falseness of which is to be detected by what it does not say rather than by what it says. It seems to say all of the right things, but it never says any of the vital things. You, you, you hear me? It has a lot of Bible coverings, but it never teaches the great necessary truth that Jesus Christ and Him alone is the way that you can be saved. It may talk a little bit about the goodness of God. It may tell you that God loves you. It may tell you that God has a plan for your life. It may tell you that God wants you to live a certain way, but it doesn't tell you how to live that way. And that's namely by coming to an end of yourself because you're a sinner and crying out to God because you need a Savior. And His name being Jesus Christ and Him alone. It doesn't provide the narrow way. Maybe that's bringing to mind, even as we say that, some of the people you've heard on television or on the radio. 
Secondly, I, I tell you that false prophet, they preach a comfortable Christianity. You know, we talked about this last week that, that Jesus said, you want to come after me? Fine. Follow me, but I have no place to lay my head, right? He never says it's going to be easy, but that's exactly what these people talk about. For them, it's all goodness, it's all overcoming, it's all abundance, it's all blessing. But I want you to hear what God thinks about that kind of preaching, okay? See, they had this problem back in the days of Israel too. Turn with me to the book of Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah is right after the book of Isaiah, folks. You're looking for it. Jeremiah chapter 23. I'm going to be in verse 16 as you guys turn there. Jeremiah 23, starting in verse 16, God's speaking through the prophet. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their own hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. But which of them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see or to hear his word? Who has listened and heard his word? See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In days to come, you will understand it clearly. I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people and would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. God says these men aren't my men. They're men, all right. They're speaking prophecies, but they're speaking prophecies of their own mind. I, I want you to hear Please hear the danger when all we hear is that, you know, we're okay and it's all goodness. It's all abundance. We're going to overcome. We, we, we really get disillusioned and we forget the Christian life isn't easy, brother. Right. Do you remember how what David cried out? Did David just always cry out? Oh, God, you're glorious. My life's wonderful. I love it. Right. What about God? How long? How long until you hear me, Lord? How long must I stay in this Pit, David says. And you know what, friends? Sometimes life is a pit. Okay? It just is. All our kids are gone, so I'm going to say it. You know what? Sometimes life stinks, doesn't it? Sometimes life stinks. And if you're listening to the false prophet, he's going to tell you that it's your fault. He's going to tell you that it's your fault that God wants you to have abundance and joy. and want... You know what? God does want you to have joy, but he wants you to have joy in the midst of suffering. God wants you to have Him in the midst of the toughness. He is our joy. He is our strength. He is our source. I can overcome things in life because I know that He's defeated those things and one day I'll have a beautiful resurrection body. A little Matthew McConaughey action is coming my way. All right? Minus the naked bongo playing. Uh, it's coming. It's coming. We're a little taller. A little taller. When I say that I've overcome, it doesn't mean that I've overcome 
all my struggles. It doesn't mean that I've overcome every temptation. It means that I've overcome the penalty of all that stuff. That my God loves me enough to walk with me through the suffering. Friends, when this is why Paul rejoices in suffering. This is why James rejoices in suffering. Do you know why? Because it's a portrait of Christ. Do you know what God did for you? God put on flesh and walked amongst you, walked amongst you and He suffered. He suffered and died so that you could be made right with God. And when we walk through life and we suffer, we get to partake in what He has done on our behalf. We are walking out the gospel. And that's worthy of rejoicing. That's worthy of rejoicing. All right, I want you to see it. This is so huge. You've got to understand Christ's warning. It's not that there are wolves in the world. It's that there are going to be wolves in the church. You have to be able to pick them out. All right, number three. Now, I think this is good news, by the way. I think number three is good news, all right? <clears throat> Sooner or later, a tree betrays itself. Sooner or later, a tree betrays itself. Verse 16, it says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Okay, good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear... Bad fruit. By your fruit, you will recognize them. All right? It's a big, big deal. Now, I want to share this with you. Uh, Some of you should never plant a fruit tree. All right? Just want to tell you. Some of you are like me, and you should never plant a garden. Uh, Definitely not a fruit tree. Brother, I don't even have enough patience for tomatoes. You know what I'm saying? I plant a tomato, I'm ready for salsa that day, and here I am having to wait a couple more months, okay? You plant a fruit tree, do you know on average it takes three to five years for that tree to produce fruit? That's just ridiculous, alright? Just joking, Lord. Just, right? Three to five, you have to be a patient person for this sucker. I mean, I, I'm not a mathematician, but that could be 1,500 days, you know what I'm saying? That's a lot of days that you're waiting for this thing to produce fruit. And then I had this, this crazy thought, what if when I was at the nursery, some teenager switched the, the, the little tag on the trees, and I was finally waiting for that dadgum peach, and it came out and it was a plum, right? Five years for a plum! Are you kidding me? I wanted a peach, right? I mean, oh. But you know what? That's the great thing about a tree is eventually, eventually it will produce fruit. And when it does, it betrays itself. And then you'll know if it was really a peach tree or if it was a plum tree. You know what? The same is true with false prophets. Eventually, their true motivation will come out. Eventually, you will be able to tell who they really are. Eventually, you will be able to hear the falseness in their gospel if you listen for it carefully. A tree always betrays itself, all right? You need to know that. You need to be looking for that. Now, listen, I'm not talking about trying to have some kind of hypercritical spirit, but I am talking about putting on the full armor of God. Good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. What's deep down will always work its way to the surface. Always. Always. Look for the abuses. Look for the things that they're doing that aren't right. If they're doing things that aren't right, then their message isn't right. Okay? Number four. Lastly, I want to share with you, according to this text, that real fruit lasts. Real fruit lasts. Verse 19 uh, says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, And thrown into the fire. Good fruit, real fruit lasts. Okay? 
the Puritans uh, had a great study in this. When the Puritan revival came along, they had all these people that were joining the church and being baptized. And they, they would get so excited. They'd, they'd go to this revival. Man, they would have this emotional encounter with God. They would be, woohoo, I'm on fire, you know, and, and it's, it's on fire as you can be for a Puritan. And, uh, and so then they would, they would hop in and they would get plugged in. And, uh, and, and then, I mean, they'd get super plugged in. They'd start doing things in the church and then something would happen. They drift away. And the Puritans actually had a label for these people. They called them temporary believers. That label stings a little bit. Here's the reason they called them temporary believers. Because uh, it was un- there was always unmistakable evidence afterwards that these people had never truly become Christians at all. So here's the portrait. They came and they were, they were affected. They were affected by the Holy Spirit. And, and, and they were affected by the Holy Spirit to the point that it sounded good. They could see a different life in other people. They started to try to do it. But though they had been affected by the Holy Spirit, they had never been infected by the Holy Spirit. Friends, it's not enough to be affected by the Holy Spirit. We must be infected by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's got to come inside of us. We must be born again. John chapter 3, right? Nicodemus comes to Jesus. What must I do to be saved? Nicodemus, you must be born of the Spirit. You've got to be infected by the Spirit of God. That only happens by trusting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It's not an emotional thing, although emotions can be a part of it. Okay? It's an exchange. We understand that we are sinners, separated by God, separated from God. We understand that there is nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. And what do we do? We say, God, I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. Here is my life. And he, in turn, gives us his perfection, gives us his life, gives us his spirit. It is an exchange. It's an exchange. And that's what we're going to do. Okay, so I want you to see that real fruit lasts. That gives us the application and then we're done. Just two things and we'll be done, okay? Number one, based on what you heard, I pray that you would accept the standard of truth. Okay? Lee Strobel writes an awesome book uh, called Case for Faith. And in it, he tells the story of Billy Graham. And uh, Billy Graham was, uh, of course, before he became the Billy Graham we know, he was doing youth revivals. And he was doing youth revivals with Youth for Christ. And his roommate and ministry partner was a guy named Charles Templeton. And Charles Templeton, by all accounts, was actually a better preacher than Billy Graham. Can you imagine? You following me? Better preacher than Billy Graham, Charles Templeton. More decisions, more people came forward, all this stuff. But something happened with Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton began to be plagued by his reason. And and, and to the point that his reason began to challenge and actually tried to replace the central truths of Scripture in his life. And in his heart. And because he and Billy were such good friends, that stuff began to affect and seep its way over into Billy Graham. And so these doubts and these concerns and all this great philosophical reason began to plague Billy Graham to the point that he actually got, got to the point he said, if I, if I couldn't believe the Bible, I was going to have to walk away. I was going to have to walk away. Now, this is before the Los Angeles crusade. This is before the beginning of what we know as Billy Graham's ministry, right? It began with that great Los Angeles crusade. Thousands of people getting saved. Big movie stars, all this stuff became the Billy Graham that we know. And, and, and here he is. He's plagued by these thoughts about the Bible from his friend Charles Templeton. And so he, he grabs his Bible one night and, and, and he just... He, he, 
this is what Graham says. He says, I was doubtful, or I was disturbed, if not doubtful. And if I couldn't trust the Bible, I couldn't go on in ministry. And so he grabbed his Bible and he went on a walk one night out in the San Bernardino Mountains. Just him and his Bible and the Lord. And he began to just kind of kind of walk and meditate. And this, this doubt and this stuff, it's coming over him. It's washing over him. And finally, he just felt like the Holy Spirit just 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 tore him to his knees and he fell to his knees in the middle of the mountains as he's out on this walk. He's clenching his Bible to his chest and this is what he prays. He says, Father, I'm going to accept thy word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and doubts. I will believe this to be your inspired word. Simple prayer. Billy Graham says he got up and he felt the power of God like he hadn't felt in months. And he went on to preach the Los Angeles crusade. And the rest is history, friends. Hear me. In a room this size, I think there might be more than one or two of you that need to pray that kind of prayer about this word this morning. That you need to come before God. Maybe you've been overcome by doubts and reasons, and it has affected your faith journey. Friends, this is a faith journey. And maybe this morning you need to come before God, Bible in hand, and just cry out, Father, I will accept this as thy word. I will allow your word to be greater than any intellectual doubts or thoughts that I might have. I will stand upon thy word and let you be God. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. I challenge you to it. You'll never regret standing on the Word of God. Never. Never. Number two, we'll be done. I want to challenge you this week to watch out for wolves. It means you're going to have to examine. I'm not talking about a spirit of criticism, but I'm talking about a, a sound doctrine, checking to see if, if there's good or bad fruit. Is this teaching just telling me that I'm okay? Is it giving me some false sense of security? Does this pastor's teaching have a narrow way? I want you to hear me. I'm glad that as Christians that you want to grow in your faith and you're out there and you're, you're taking in other messages and you're seeking it. But, but if you take in all those messages without hearing this one, then you could be in trouble. Hear me. Hear, hear the message. Ready? There are wolves in the church. There are wolves in the church. And if you take in every message without measuring it against the standard of truth, it'll eat you alive. It'll eat you alive. Okay? You've got to watch out for wolves. Alright? We're going to pray here in a second. Last thing I'd ask you to think about, it's not on the screen. Just want you to ask this of yourself. Real fruit last, remember? I'm going to tell you this. Before I was ever infected with the gospel, I was affected by the gospel. Dated a girl in high school. She seemed to be a nice girl. Family was nice. She told me I had to come to church with her if I wanted to keep dating her. Right? It's Church of Christ. One day she said, you're getting baptized next week. Not joking. She invited my mother to church and she stuck her foot on my thigh and pushed me out into the aisle. I stumbled forward and the pastor said, son, I understand you're coming to receive Christ. I was like, I'm walking the aisle, whatever, brother. Baptize you that day, by the way. You should remember to take off underpants if that's going to happen. It's a little awkward when you walk and your pocket's wet, I'm just saying. I want you to hear me clearly. I was affected.
by the gospel, but I was not infected by the gospel. I was not saved. If I would have died at any point from there, between when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I would have gone to hell. I promise you. Don't live under a false sense of security. Real fruit is fruit that lasts. There's a huge difference between hearing the gospel and believing the gospel and changing paths. We talked about it last week. There's a huge difference between being affected by the gospel and being infected by the gospel. When the Holy Spirit of God comes into your life to live and dwell there, you will know it. You will know it. And maybe you're here this morning and you just don't know it. Let's nail that down today. What do you say? Let's nail that down today. Let today be the day of your salvation. Would you guys?